This is a test of the emergency podcast system. Repeat, this is a test of the emergency podcast system. Disaster Girls is an unironic excavation of disaster movies with profiles as high as the tallest volcano and as low as the Marianas Trench. In order to ensure your safety and enjoyment, please remain calm and keep your ears locked on your hosts, myself, Jordan Cruciola, and me, Amanda Smith. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Disaster Girls podcast. This is my home. I'm not used to doing this. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Disaster Girls podcast. Uh, it is your co-host, Amanda Smith, and we don't have Jordan today, but we do have a fabulous guest. Fabulous guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, uh, my name is Fabulous Guest. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm Claire Willett. Uh, I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon, and a longtime Twitter friend of Amanda's and a huge fan of this podcast and of disaster movies. So I'm thrilled to be here. So thrilled to have you. Like one of the very few good things about Twitter is that you make these really great Twitter friends mm-hmm. um, and you're a fucking delight. So, you know, <laughs> thank you. So are you. Oh, thanks. And today we are talking about Lake Placid. Uh, Claire, do you have it like did you you said you hadn't seen it before, right? No, I I I heard of it in the sort of, you know, general loose way of like like I could imagine a blockbuster shelf with like Lake Placid, Congo, Anaconda, <laughs> you know, kind of like all sure. like I I could place it in terms of genre and I could tell you like there's probably a monster in a lake called Lake Placid, but like I couldn't have told you a single fact about it. But um <laughs> But I think like whenever it was that the Meg first came out and I was like hysterically tweeting about how much I loved the Meg. And then my friend John, who is one of those people who like doesn't recommend things very often because but like because they know exactly what you like, but is like correct 100 percent of the time. He was oh, sure. like, I really think that you would like Lake Placid. And I just was like, isn't that like. 80s B movie like I just sort of was like I I don't like doesn't it doesn't sound like quote unquote good and he was like no just trust me and then you and I were talking like like a year ago and then just like couldn't make scheduling work to have me on the podcast so I deliberately was like I'm not going to watch it until I can watch it like fresh for this podcast so it's only been on my radar as like a thing I had been told that I would enjoy for like you know a, a year or two and then I watched it and I was like okay, this genuinely might be my new favorite romantic comedy. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, anytime you've got Bill Pullman as a lead opposite any oh, woman, yeah. it's just like it becomes the best romantic comedy you've ever watched. Well, because he's just, you know, he's so archetypically the guy she leaves for the main guy in mm-hmm. like every 90s movie. And so the scant handful of times that he gets the girl, you're like, good for you, Bill. I was, I, you're <laughs> always so happy for him and his floppy I hair. Oh, yeah. And well, I mean, and it's so, and Bridget Fonda too, you know, like, I mean, another like classic rom-com star of the 90s. Like I, I one of the things that I do that we can talk about when we get more into it, but I really immediately loved about this movie is that it has like it has all of the tropes and beats of a rom-com I mean to the degree of like it's practically a Hallmark Christmas movie set up like she's a big city museum (laughs) employee he's a small town fishing game you know it was like (laughs) oh my god this 
Like, if you just told me, you know that 90s rom-com where, like, Bill Pullman's the fish and game guy and Bridget Fonda's the, like, museum archaeologist whose boss is cheating that she was having an affair with and then, like, they get together in a quirky small town and Betty White's there, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I vaguely remember... Like I, 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 it would feel enough familiar that I'd be like, yeah, I, I would, I would Mandela effect that that rom com existed. Only it's like that plus an alligator. Yeah, if you pull out dismemberment. If you pull out the thirty foot crocodile, you're absolutely right. This is completely yes. This is a rom com that I would have watched and would watch every year at Christmas. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's so funny because it really is like. She Bridget Fonda in this is so aggressively unlikable, but <laughs> in that way that David E. Kelly, like, I don't know. I always feel like with David E. Kelly's women, he's such a great writer, except for when he has to write women. And then it's like he's run them through chat GPT. <laughs> and you're like, well, that's that's almost how a woman would act. You're so close. <laughs> you're so, so close. Um, well, and he he's routinely saved by great actresses yeah exactly who, who add nuance that maybe isn't there because i i mean i found her sort of delightfully unlikable oh, yeah. you know like like all of the all of the expected beats of like you know a, a woman from new york who doesn't know how to function anywhere that isn't new york which again is like the classic hallmark christmas so, movie rom-com yeah. you know heroine um, this idea that like New Yorkers are helpless the minute you step outside the city limits, but um, but she was also just such a a wonderfully like blatant asshole. Yeah, I was just like, and and her and her bantery bickering was genuinely funny. I was like, okay, I you're like just like a chaotic weirdo, and I'm really rooting for you. And <laughs> yeah, super <laughs> unlikable, but I I was like, I'm having a great time with her. I don't care. Yeah, no, and that's the thing is like, I don't, it's that, that thing of like, well, she's unlikable, but not in a way that feels fault. Like she's unlikable because of bad mm-hmm. writing. She's unlikable right. because he writes these, he writes, generally speaking, women in this very mm-hmm. weird, distinctive way, but yeah. she's so great and consistent that you're like, yeah, mm-hmm. she does inexplicably think everyone in Maine is, is has no hygiene. Yeah. That's <laughs> like that running joke is so weirdly distinctive. And you're like, I don't. Oh my God. If I thought of rural Maine, that's just not like dirty rednecky rural is not rural Maine to me no well and and like there's at the very very end of the movie somebody finally mentions Portland and I'm like oh good okay so somebody remembered there's a major city (laughs) in this state like they don't all live in the woods yeah but I think that's another you know another extremely silly yeah. kind of classic comedy stereotype of like the assumption of New Yorkers that everyone outside of New York is Absolutely. like one step up from a bear like the all the and and uh Bullshi and and Hector you know making jokes about like nobody can read like I have a hygiene so I wouldn't be allowed here <laughs> like I you know it's just it was so like everyone hates museum people and it's like well no they hate you two because you two specifically as individual humans are crazy yeah you know and I actually did feel that by the end of it, like the small town goes like I I was feeling for that sheriff. Like he didn't ask. Oh my for god, any I felt this. so bad for the sheriff. Yeah. He, like he went through it. Honestly, the sh- the sheriff Sheriff Hank was to me the true hero of this film. Yes. Oh, hundred percent. Yes. Like this man did not if you reframe it as the movie about the small town sheriff, mm-hmm. 
it is absolutely his story. This is he's oh, the yeah. only one who has a character arc, truly. Like he's mm-hmm. and he gets so much abuse for just existing. And he's also the delightful Brenton Gleason. Oh my god, he's he such was a baby so funny. in it. Well, and from right from the beginning, like it starts off with him being condescended to by an out-of-towner, and that yeah. kind of just just kicks off from there. And every time a new person shows up in town the first thing they do is condescend to the sheriff and you know i mean you got to remember like it like in a small town like all these people know each other so like to us the audience it's like a funny sight gag with like a dismembered head or toe and to the out-of-towners it's like whoa this case keeps heating up but to him it's like he worked with that guy you know like it's like give the man a break i i felt like one thing I really enjoyed about the the characters in this movie was, and he he was a real standout for me, was who behaves like a person who has no idea that they're in a disaster movie and who is incredibly aware of like exactly what movie they're in. Like he's just like, he's just a guy yeah. who just goes to work every day as a small town sheriff and then suddenly a disaster movie lands on his doorstep and he's like, what the hell is going on? Meanwhile, Bridget Fonda's character is somebody who was forcibly pushed out of her like working gal rom-com into a disaster movie <laughs> where she doesn't want to be. Yeah. But then Bill Pullman's character and Oliver Platt's character were like, oh no, we're absolutely equipped for this. We we came prepared. We are unfazed by anything in our own very different ways. And we were like diving. In. And I, I really, I felt like that dichotomy of like, who is resistant to these tropes versus who is like, I am the tropes, you know, like it was, yeah. was very, very funny. That's such a great point. That's extremely true. And you're right. Like there is so much of the, di- like when you talk about her rom-com dynamic, which when we meet, when we meet her and she's at work at the museum and her boss has been sleeping with everybody in the office and Mariska Hargitay is in a bodycon dress. <laughs> Incredible. Mariska and Hargitay. Adam Arkin. What a side plot. Where's that movie? Yes. God, I mean, can you imagine? Like, listen, I've been in the sciences. I've been in those situations, like not in a museum setting, but I've been like in an academic setting. And yes, it's true. Like there are, you would be shocked at the hot women fighting over guys where you're like, he's just some dude. <laughs> but in particular- when Adam Arkin is there and it's like Adam Arkin is trying to is have is in a love triangle between Bridget Fonda and Mariska Hargitay. It's it's very flattering to Adam. Yeah, I was like, okay, you're you're punching above your weight here a bit. Quite a bit. Mariska yeah. Hargitay. Like in 1999, Mariska, she's so like upsettingly stunning in this. In oh that, my God, like, she's gorgeous. one scene that she has. Yeah. Now, was this, I couldn't remember, and I was too lazy to IMDb it. Was was she already on Law and Order by this? Like, was she, was this like a celebrity cameo that she was already a star? Or was this like baby Mariska before she was famous to us? That's a great question. I don't know offhand. I'm gonna I'm pulling up her IMD or her what's it called right now. Because it was like 99 or something. Yeah. I, I no, she was still she was still on soap operas, I think. I oh, don't think okay. she had I mean it does feel like oh no, she's so she had just that was the first year. 99 okay. Okay. was when she breaks through. So she okay. would have filmed this before yeah. Law and Order became a thing. Okay. It's um, just it's so funny to see her as like a quirky best friend ingenue when like 
we are accustomed to seeing her like she would rip a man like Adam Arkin sleeping with his coworkers to shreds. Yeah. Like she would be there to prosecute him for sexual harassment in the workplace. And instead she's like, ah, ha, 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 we couldn't help it. We're just in love. And I was like, whoa, this is a real turn. You know what? Headcanon now, this was actually a sting operation that she was conducting. That's how, because we don't revisit the museum ever again. And, no, you know, and and we don't hear anything else about the museum once once Kelly has left mm-hmm. the museum. So in my head, entire subplot is unfolding where basically Kevin, where Kevin is being taken down by yeah, um, doctor by Pro- Detective Benson, and that's what's happening off screen because he's a fucking sex pest. I support it. I I feel I feel much better about that than than just the idea that like, you know we're her coworkers have just like decided to have an affair. And the only reason that that was in the story was to get her to Maine, which leaves it like a bit of a, a bit of a dangling thread. But I also yeah, was especially like, to, not to get her to Maine, her boss then sent who she's been sleeping with, then sends her away to me <laughs> in, into a, I mean, again, he, in his defense, he yeah. didn't know it was a dangerous situation, but still it's like, I hope this guy felt really awful when he found out that she was almost eaten by a giant monster crocodile because it's like, those are your fucking fault, Adam Arkin. But it is also like, it's David E. Kelly. So inevitably, it's like there was going to be a workplace affair yeah. in this story someplace. And I guess it's good that we sort of just like swept it out of the way in the first five minutes before we like, you know, cut back to the small town. But right, uh, yeah, but it's such a wild little like, our little peek at her urban life that she's being ejected from was like, this is really grim. Maybe you'd be better off in Maine. Yeah. I do think though that like to counter the idea that he didn't, that Kevin didn't know what he was sending her into. We know what Kelly thinks that Maine is like, as far as we know, Kevin also thinks that he is sending her off to basically like he sent her off into the wilds Mm -hmm. and I guess like to get her out of the way, but also, you know, Kevin might've been like, Oh, the dinosaur is going to eat her. That's because true. Who knows he, what's in the wilds of Maine? Apparently, it's you know basically deliverance. I, I did love I, the the dialogue on this. Like, is so snappy and funny. Yeah. And the scene where he, where he comes in and he's like, "Look at the tooth," and she's like, "Uh huh, great." And he's like, "It's it, they they pulled it out of the guy. They think it's a dinosaur." And she's like, "Cool, a dinosaur killed him. What do you want?" Like, <laughs> just like, get out of my office. <laughs> it was like, so and she's funny. right. It's also not her job. Yeah. It's not what paleontologists do. You send that to a biologist. You yeah. send that to a paleontologist. But they, they sort of hand waved it away where she's like, but I've never done any field work. Yeah. And it's like, well, and technically you still haven't because like you got thrown into an active investigation with the live creature, which is very much not the role of a paleontologist. No, absolutely not. <laughs> that is distinctly not what paleontologists do. <laughs> it's great. Like I, I appreciate, like I'm, I'm, currently writing a disaster movie and one of the things that's so hard is figuring out not necessarily even the science like not figuring out the science but figuring out the why is this happening now yeah and that's always so hard and i love that david e kelly is just like fuck it we're never gonna answer it i don't care he never answers it never answers it never explains it i mean i absolutely think you know at the end there's the reveal that betty white is feeding all of her little baby crocodiles Mm -hmm. off the dock and so i'm like okay very clearly betty white is running a smuggling ring that's the only answer this isn't a hundred but they don't clear they don't clarify that no i mean there's a million different ways that alligator the crocodiles could have gotten 
there's like did did the two big ones that we see spawn those little ones yeah. did she breathe it? like yeah it's it's never addressed and people people make sort of hand wavy references to like well it's not impossible that he just swam across an ocean well they have been migrating north so there's lots of like maybe it might have yeah but there's there's never that moment where you're like ah ha 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 a billionaire who owns a private island yeah. had a exotic animal zoo and what like there's no nothing no actual facts are provided and finally i was like you know what good for you like yeah. i you you knew enough to know what you didn't know david e kelly and you didn't trust yourself to make it plausible so you just never told us so we will all live forever in the world of like endless sequel possibilities where no are. concrete answer is given for how a 30-foot crocodile ended up in maine it's like he just did next scene and i was yeah. like you know what i honestly like i respect it it's so it's so great because it also like he's right it doesn't matter it doesn't change the fact it, that like, yes, there's a giant it doesn't matter it doesn't yeah. matter why the crocodile is there it's a giant yeah. crocodile eating people it's a problem mm-hmm. like that's just that's not gonna fly right but, yeah it, he absolutely has like zero interest in it and you're you're right there are there because when i was looking through last night trying to find it there are like at least four sequels and then also predator versus i think it was anaconda but like or not predator crocodile versus anaconda Amazing. Um, So yeah, they you know there's a whole EU about it, and I hope that they never fully explain where these are coming from. I hope that this is there's just like a portal at the bottom of this lake that goes. Yeah, there's like kaiju crocodile from coming over from Asia swimming through some like sinkhole. I mean that's the thing is like at this point like whatever excuse they gave like whatever the justification is like I'm I'm having a great time so I'm ready to believe it and I don't need to burden myself with a lot of fact checking. But it was sort of the funniest approach possible to just never give us an answer and let the audience kind of live forever in the same mindset of these characters of like this one crazy unexplained thing that like happened to me at work one time all those years ago and then just like literally <laughs> never know. Yeah, exactly. It's, you're right. Cause it is, it becomes that like, well, that was, you want to hear the craziest story. I, it, you know, that Bill Pullman as the game warden is sitting in bars for years afterward oh, being yeah. like, do you think that's a story? Mm-hmm. Let me tell you about the time <laughs> like, Ab with his like, ridiculously hot paleontologist wife. Yeah. <laughs> She's just, uh, I mean, it's just incredible. It's the dynamic of the two of them is just delightful. Um, it's so good. It's so good. That, that whole little quartet ensemble. I, I just, I mean, I, I would have, I would have watched them for 50 hours. I would watch them in any transplanted into any movie universe. I would watch the four of them commentate the Olympics. Like just the dynamics <laughs> were so, it was so good. And it was so precisely balanced, you know, like at the beginning it's, you know, it starts off with it's like, two guys bickering and you get a little glimpse into kind of the the hilarious sort of power hierarchy of like local sheriff but he's Mm -hmm. outranked by like fish and game but then fish and game is outranked by u.s wildlife and then nobody likes the guys from florida like all the sort of internal (laughs) politicking of of local government which that was very funny and and then she enters and then briefly for like an uncomfortable few scenes it's like two rustic guys against the dumb out of her depth you know fish out of water city lady which was the least fun part of it yeah. and then hector shows up 
and is immediately so insane that everyone's kind of unified in trying to rein him in. But he's also a city guy, so he gets hurt. So it like yeah. it shifted the balance of power back a little bit. So it wasn't like two men yelling at one woman that she like doesn't belong here. And it allowed for like little moments of you know sometimes she and Hector are in opposition and it's very funny and sometimes it's three against him but sometimes like he's her ally or she's his ally against the other two so it just it gave it like a little bit more of an even playing field but also then like then you have four different directions from which hilarious bickering and arguing is coming from because like no two people really agree <laughs> Yeah. And you're totally right. Like the geometry of each scene is so it keeps moving so much because yeah. everyone is it's it's basically like they're the four quadrants of, you know, chaotic, like lawful yes. good, lawful, you know, yes. they're, they're like doing and they're all each in a different little quadrant and always pulling the scene around in those mm-hmm. different ways. I do love like Hector is again to to because this is so distinctly a David like if I watch this I, without the knowledge that it was David E. Kelly, I'd be like, why does this feel so much because Hector is again David E. Kelly's like those are inside thoughts, David character. Yeah. Which yeah. I think, yeah. Which I, I'm always so curious of like, does he is this just like he desperately wants his inside thoughts to be outside so he always has to have an avatar for it? Or is this how he thinks it's like if you're on the spectrum, you bet I'm so curious about like where this character that he always has comes from. But yeah. he always manages to make each one so distinctly inappropriate. Well, and and this one, I mean, I Oliver Platt is is truly yeah. just one of those actors for me where it's like the minute he shows up in something, it's like, I don't actually care what it is. I am going to have a good time. Like, yeah, whatever ride you are taking me on, Oliver Platt, I will go all the way there with you. He's just he's just phenomenal. But he his unhinged cocaine energy <laughs> in this movie was so magnificent. And he had some of the funniest. I mean, everything that he said was so hilarious. And yeah, and some of it was just like, you know, just straight up like, you know, telling the sheriff like, hey, you're fat, which I didn't love. Or like, hey, yeah. I like this deputy. She has huge boobs. You're like, guy, what? But then he also had like, my favorite weird thing about him was like the the introduction of this notion that he has this kind of mystical Oh, his whole thing with crocodiles? Crocodiles. Which, which is, we're sort of introduced to like, like that's, that's his thing, right? Every, yeah. every rich, weird guy has a weird thing. And that's this rich, weird guy's weird thing. It's crocodiles. Okay. So now it's like, it's weird, but like, again, it's a movie trope. I, I get it. You know, Hammond's was dinosaurs. His is crocodiles. I'm with you. And, and then, and then I loved that then t- towards the end when he's talking about like his conversation with the crocodile, which we'll get to and, and about how like, how the wisdom and profundity that he like saw in the creature's eyes. And she's kind of like, all right, come off it. And he's like, <laughs> okay, yeah. Like, all right, fine. I'm full of shit. <laughs> it's just like- I, I love that beat when he's, yeah. When he just admits it, like, no, he just like, the truth is, is that he's just a rich dude who is chases adventure by exactly. swimming with crocodiles. And he, and he's grafted this kind of mythos onto it to make it seem like mysterious or more respectable yeah. or to make it feel like a belief system no one can interfere with but he's just some guy and this is the like wild shit he does on the weekends for fun because like the more rich you are the more easily bored you are you have to chase like insane psychotic thrills and then he finally is sort of like yeah all right fine that was bullshit which was so <laughs> so funny so funny but he also 
but then that he also is genuinely like his his most humane like okay there actually is a person underneath like the quirky quips moment was that it sincerely upsets him the thought of them killing yeah the only yeah the only solution to this problem is to kill the crocodile and and that does get him in like a real place significantly enough that it's persuasive to kelly but all the way up throughout it you're just like he's just he's just insane he's just like the most unhinged like a cartoon billionaire and then and then and then he so he gets just enough depth to be like okay you're not you're not a cartoon character but it's still just deeply silly and he had some of some of just like the funniest lines i love when he was like when he's looking at the at the crocodile as it's swimming towards him mm-hmm. and he's oh, like yeah. he's like I could see how you would think biting my head <laughs> off would be a viable option, but it would cheapen you. <laughs> it was such a great, so perfect. I loved, I, I like, like, what a great laughing. bit of negotiation that it's is. So, just like talking to the crocodile like it's a person. Yeah. Which was so good. It's yeah, so I good. Well, yeah, I also, I love the, because I think it, the beat that perce- that comes right before it is when he's like, mm-hmm. oh, you're different. Like he yeah. looks at it and he yeah. recognizes how out of his own depth he is. Mm-hmm. And I love that moment because then he starts negotiating with it like it's a person. And I yeah. think that's just such a great transition. It is. It's it's like that. that's the one little flicker that we get that there is something authentic behind. Yeah. Like at least a genuine reverence, if not like a real sort of spirituality, but like a like a deep, profound kind of respect and connection that he has with crocodiles. And and also that we see in the moment where it's like, OK, this actually is somebody who has looked a lot of crocodiles in the eye before. Yeah. Like he actually has done this before because he can immediately clock like something here is not right. Something here is not familiar. And it isn't that he's scared of being in proximity to a crocodile. That's his whole deal. It's that like this one it's specifically has some this other... crocodile. Yeah. And that's another sort of again dangling thread that isn't explained. Like that would that would seem to imply that this one has origins that are not just Betty White raised him since he was a baby and he accidentally ate her husband like some other that he got here through some other way but again never explained we don't know we just know that there's something kind of different and mystical about this one but again we're never told what it is or how he got there it's just that it like that it pings some awareness on some primal level with Hector that I I did find like that was genuinely compelling that's when he's like okay plan change like all right you're right I don't want to like hug this one (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's and it, it is there's like that because you always have that sort of thing of like this it, when you're watching a disaster movie about a giant animal it's always like well this giant animal is special somehow like this is yeah. a a work it's always like got a little bit of that vibe of like this was sent here by the devil it's kind of always the mm-hmm. like or there's a demon in this one and this the it's not even that like the crocodile isn't because he never is like oh you're different you're he just there's something there's different about him but he never specifies what it is mm-hmm. and i do really like that aspect as well that it's not necessarily that the alligator that this crocodile is like oh you're different you're there's an evilness to you it's just like mm-hmm. there's something and i love that aspect of it i love that like that gives it a mythical quality without ever putting too fine a point of it yeah yeah and then in that moment like at the end when they when they do finally have it tranquilized and subdued mm-hmm. and you finally get sort of like a a long still sort of lingering close up on its face and like and there was there was some real pathos to it like there like you you felt for this creature in a way that 
I think the the best monster movies, absolutely. E- even if the monster has to die in the end to sort of set the universe back, on you know, a right, that you still have that moment of empathy of like, okay, but it's still a living creature that like has a consciousness and you know the right to live and and you know and that gratuitously you know like that shooting something in self-defense because it's like about to eat you is very different from like just blasting the head off of a creature who is now tranquilized and defenseless because you think it might do something again you know so once we get that moment where it sort of has been sedated and is no longer an active threat and we can sort of just like contemplate it you know i i felt like now i'm sort of suddenly giving credence to the idea that this is just like an ancient crocodile with some you know weird i don't know genetic whatever that lets it live for like a billion years longer than those other crocodiles who swam here across an ocean (laughs) because he has the face of a guy who's seen some shit and you know, and and I just yeah, and I felt for him in the moment. I was like, okay, I now I'm now I'm invested, and I don't want anyone to kill this crocodile. <laughs> like now, it's like now he is my son, and I don't want any harm to come to him. Do not hurt Claire's large crocodile son. Yes, that's that's the that's the bottom line here. Put it's him in a nice tank, let him swim around, yeah. snack on cows. Yeah, don't that crocodile chill. I'm sure that there's like, I mean, at the end, don't we? He get the the crocodile gets sent to like an oil tanker essentially to to live out its days theoretically. So yeah, you know. which I'm sure I'm sure comes into play in the sequels. One would but, hope. Yeah, but yeah, it's funny because like you know, it, it's so interesting. The like there's a morality, a different morality with disaster movies involving the large animals versus morality when like the villain is ultimately a bad guy. Because right. I think of like, we watched a movie called City on Fire, which was a 70s movie. And it's ultimately about an arsonist. And in the kind of toward the conclusion, this arsonist, who is very clearly unwell, he dies in the fire. So he never gets caught and he never gets like punished. Mm. And I, Jordan and I were both like, this is just so unfair. We want to see this guy brought to justice. Like this isn't, it's just so unsatisfying that he just dies. And it's funny because the you have the opposite reaction always when it's an animal movie. Because the mm-hmm. like with the humans, you're always like, that person did it intentionally. It is their right. negligence. It is their choice. There must be a repercussion versus like the scale of damage that Godzilla does in the Roland Emmerich Godzilla. You're like, Godzilla's got to die, man. That's it's, it's untenable otherwise. But when you're watching that movie, you do not want Godzilla to die. Godzilla's yeah. looking directly at Matthew Broderick having a soulful moment. You're like, Godzilla needs to live. It, it, they, she deserves better than that. She's a single yeah, mom like- just trying to get through a day. And like, yeah, okay, fine. She's knocking over buildings, but it's because she's big and has a big tail and she can't help it. Yeah, she's, not she's not trying to kill civilians in an urban area. It's not like, her ev- fault that nesting in Madison, yeah. Madison Square Garden, what are people really using it for? Let her exactly. nest. <laughs> Billy Joel can perform somewhere else. He totally can. And you know, I bet that Billy Joel, and I bet that she would love Billy Joel. Exactly. I bet she would enjoy exactly. Piano Man. Let her, yeah. let her be the uptown girl. Exactly. <laughs> but it's, yeah, but it's the same thing of like with, with this where you're watching it and it's like, despite the fact that you watch this very large crocodile absolutely menace people that you like and take someone's head off, just clean cut it, it you don't want to see the crocodile be killed at the end. And mm-hmm. it's when uh, I was so, when Bill Pullman was really looking like he was going to kill, it had me going. I me thought. Me too. I really thought Jack was like going to, I was going to go for it. And yeah. I was so I, the I once he when he grabbed the Trank gun, I was like, okay, fine. If he's gonna do it himself, it's not gonna be a real gun. 
but I really thought he was he was thinking about it. And I thought he was too. And and which is shocking because again, that that fundamentally subverts the tropes of the rom-com. Like that yeah. there are there's a kind of guy who would do that versus a kind of guy who wouldn't in a movie like this. And this is before, you know, like Game of Thrones and, you know, the rise of like shock deaths on streaming television, where the whole point is like, haha, you thought I wasn't that kind of guy. And then I just shot somebody's head off. You know, yeah. like this is like, no, there are there are very clearly delineated boxes that characters fit into in a in a 90s movie. So like Bill Pullman can't just kill an innocent creature in cold blood unless the whole point of the movie is like a mask ripoff reveal that he's the real villain. But then it was like, okay, it was a trend and I felt much better. But yeah. um, but I, I think, but you're so right. Like there isn't, this movie does not have a villain. It has four antagonists who mm -hmm. all want different things at different times and are driving each other bananas. And it has a monster and a crazy lady monster enabler. Yeah. But it doesn't have a bad guy in the way that like like even the the you know the monarch industries godzilla right. cinematic universe capitalism is always the bad guy so like there is a villain like like hierarchical yeah. human power structures that manipulate creatures for their own good or take advantage of natural disasters in order to hurt other human beings and gain power are sort of always the running through line of so there are actual villains who are it's satisfying to watch them be you know hoisted on their own petard and murdered by the monster that they were caging up but there is an actual like a, a bad guy to fight and it those are fun because it is often not the monster you yeah know? um but yeah but this is just like it's just a it's just a nature's a wild fucking place isn't it yeah end of show and i was like you know what yes it is like it's just and and betty white's character part of what makes her so i mean it's just funny because it's you know it's betty white saying fuck and right. i'm a simple woman with simple needs and often that's all i need but yeah um, and this was before betty white had her like revival as a horny yeah. woman like this wasn't right. even yeah this wasn't this was 99 so this was golden girls betty white calling yeah. sheriff a fuck nut and you're like like just imagine like, like this would be like really radical at the time <laughs> you know for sure but before like rapping grannies and all like and like before having like a cute little old lady saying obscene things was like a played out trope it was like yeah. oh this would have been shocking back in its day but what one of the things that makes her so lovable aside from just sort of the fundamental silliness of the juxtaposition is that she like she is right about a lot of the things that she's like when she's like look it's his lake like it's yeah. you know like he's not actually harming anybody who isn't trying to harm him like if people just stayed out of his way and let him swim around like it would all be fine. She's coexisted with him quite peaceably for quite a long time, you know? And, and so I think, you know, her philosophy that it's like, look, he's an apex predator. Let him be an apex predator. Like you stay out of his way. Yeah. It's like white, the naturalist, honestly. Yeah. And it was like, actually there is like, there's quite a defensible case to be made that that is the humane thing to do is just to sort of say like, you know what? There, there are just little pockets of the world where humans just don't go. And if you do and you die, that's on you because we put a big fence around it so that like the crocodile could just do his do his thing and just crock around in peace. And so if you go <laughs> swimming in the crocodile lake, 
and you get your legs bitten off, like that's kind of operator error, you know? And yeah. and I, I respect that as a philosophy, honestly. You know, I think that's the, the, what would have, like, if Jurassic Park was going to work in real life, that's the only practical way to do it. It's like, it's an island and the dinosaurs just do their thing and you fly over the island in a helicopter and like look from afar and that's it. And you don't like pay a million dollars to go wandering through there and pet a T-Rex because that (laughs) will go wrong. You just like let them do their thing. And then you just like look from a distance and don't be stupid. You know, I I feel like Betty White has a, has a pretty sound perspective on these things. Yeah. I think that like of, of the characters, she definitely is the one who has the most like understanding and respect and reverence for what she's dealing with. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, she definitely very clearly gets too close to it when she's leading that, that cow down there to feed it. (laughs) I would not personally get that close to the cow (laughs) in those situations. Nope. But yeah, the cow, when that, the, the use of cows in this. Oh my God. When the cow is getting dangled over. That, that was, Amanda, that's one of the funniest. First of all, I mean, genuinely like thrilling and high stakes. Like I really was on the edge of my seat, but it was the silliest, this most most magnificently ludicrous action sequence I've ever seen in my whole life. I was like, I can't believe I'm watching this. I can't believe this is the plan they came up with. I can't believe it's kind of working. (laughs) To just dangle a cow seven (laughs) feet above the water surface and use it to lead the crocodile to a trap. Uh, a helicopter like, a helicopter with, with a, a cow hanging and a truss with the ho- cow in a harness that they dangled just deeply enough in the mm-hmm. water that he can kick his little legs yeah. and stir up <laughs> a bunch of noise to draw the crocodile and then we fly away before i, I was like like i i couldn't i couldn't believe they were fishing for crocodiles with a whole cow. cow it was the funniest thing i'd ever seen and the fact that it basically and in the end yeah that it worked but also the reveal in the end when the cow just trots by (laughs) oh my god that was so funny well that was something else that i loved about this movie where it was like okay this was like this was a monster movie with like i had but the monster part was very good but it was edited so cleanly with the beats of a comedy yeah like the the comedic timing of the editing was so impeccable like like little things like the you know the scene where um Hector and Sheriff Hank are sort of bickering over you know Hector attempting to extend sympathy for the death of the deputy and doing a terrible job at it and they're just sort of riffing back and forth um and then Sheriff Hank is basically like oh fuck you and storms away and then is like immediately zorped up into the tree upside down <laughs> in a trap that was referenced before. Yeah. This like he's laying rope traps. Don't step in them. And then he <laughs> steps in it. Um, or like all of the moments where somebody is like, okay, I don't see him. I think he's gone. And then rawr out, he comes out of the water. And then the whole okay, so like the whole the whole sequence leading up to when we finally first see the crocodile is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And it was so scary that I screamed at my TV. So it starts <laughs> with like like the bickering. Yeah. Over, you know, like the, you know, the dead deputy and like the handing him the toe. And it's all so silly. And then Sheriff Hank is like hanging upside down. And then we sort of like laugh at that for a while. And then they're like, all right, we'll cut you down if you like promise not to kill Hector. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I totally promise. Um, yeah, and they totally come down and he's like, ha no deal. And takes off chasing Hector. Hector takes off running. Then 
Chekhov's bear <laughs> appears from nowhere. Everyone's like, it, it, maybe it's a bear. A bear did this. There are bears here. Bears can swim. Maybe a bear did it. And it's like, it's not a bear. It's not a bear. And then there is like, so the first hilarious reveal is there is in, there fact, is in fact a bear. A bear <laughs> and the bear is batshit insane and comes charging in, roaring, raving its paws around. And so now we're running from the bear. And just when you're starting to think like, oh God, is like a bear going to actually get in the mix here? And it will turn out that there's like a secondary bear issue in addition to the thing. Then out comes the alligator from the water and just like gobbles up the bear in its jaws. And then just like, I I was like, I can't, first of all, like, I can't believe the like comedic escalation of this sort of series of increasing menace to Hector beats that are coming like, First, it's an angry sheriff. Then it's a bear. Then it's a crocodile eating a bear. Um, but also just that, like, that that was how that was how David E. Kelly chose to definitively confirm for us that it was a crocodile, and that we get our first sight of the monster is that he is he's saving Hector, saving Hector from a bear by gobbling up a bear whole, and everyone is just like what what did i i mean like they're just staring blankly like what did i just see and i was like yeah that is also how i feel i can't believe i just watched that this is the best (laughs) movie i've ever seen i just love how the bear just runs directly to the shore like he's bear postmates like that 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 crocodile was waiting for that bear just like thank god he's been tracking him waiting for that bear to finally show up bear had another delivery and then the bear finally gets him the alligator the crocodile's like thank you finally my food and just noms him <laughs> it's so great and then of course it does lead to yet another like it leads to the the perfect romantic sexy patching patching up bill bill pullman scene oh, love a sexy wound attending a classic of the it? genre it's just i mean I have never had a wound that I looked at and was like, well, that's something that can be sexually patched. Right. <laughs> but I appreciate that they exist. <laughs> and he does. He has like a perfectly delicate little scratch along his upper bicep. Mm-hmm. Very manly, very stoic about it, you know? And she just happens to have secret expertise in field dressing. So then it's also like, hey, surprise reveal. Some New Yorkers are competent. Like yeah. <laughs> she has an actual skill. Maybe it's time for you to take her seriously. I appreciated that. I was yeah. like, see, she can handle herself. Like I that this was a thing. Like that I like that moment because I felt like to me it reinforced like, look, she's not like she's not flighty and useless. Like she doesn't like mosquitoes. That's fair. Yeah. She doesn't like ticks. Also fair. Yep. She hates camping. Me too. She thought she was going to get a stay in a Ramada Inn and now she's in a tent. I, Claire Willett, would also be super pissed. <laughs> I hate camping. So she just like, I don't enjoy this. No. But no. that's different from being like, you know, like, like hysterical or like a, like a sort of dumb girl stereotype in an action movie where it's like the second something bad happens yeah. and then they like scream and faint and black out. Like when Kelly screams, it's because a severed head has been thrown at her, which happens twice. And you know what? Like, she's valid. Yeah. You scream, girl. A normal person would scream in that situation. And so I liked that in this little moment, I mean, obviously it was very like sexy and they're like kind of like touching a little bit and the music was sort of low and the lights mm-hmm. are dim. And it was, you know, a a classic wound tending scene. I love that. But also that it was just a reminder that like, this actually is like, 
a competent together adult woman. She's out of her element, but like, that's not a character flaw. Right. And, and she's not stupid and she's not unequipped to handle the world. She's just like doing a job. That's not the job she trained for. And she's not an outdoorsy person. And so I like the little reminder of like, yeah, no, she's not impractical. Like she's got skills. She is like, when she's like, yeah, I could probably give you stitches if I needed to. And I was like, yeah, she knows how to do things. I, I, that was like, it was just a little thing, but I really appreciated just that reminder of like, because again, like it's like David E. Kelly ladies can often be like, you know, incompetent for plot reasons to like move a storyline forward in ways that are like really grating. Um, But I liked the sort of reveal that it's like, no, she's just doesn't, just hates being outdoors, which I also hate. So I feel like I really vibe with her, but it isn't that she's somehow like, you know, needs to be rescued by a man because she can't handle sort of like basic situations. She's like, she's just having severed heads thrown at her and that's not cool. So like her feelings are legit. Yeah. (laughs) I think that it's perfectly fair for her also to feel extremely out of her element in this situation because she's been sent there with no warning. It's not like her boss was like, hey, listen, you're going to go up north and you're going to be camping for a few. Like, he just sent her there with no explanation of what she was doing while she said explicitly, this is not my field of study or what I do. So, yeah, yeah, of course she's going to be out of her element and complaining a lot. Like, fair, girl. You probably didn't pack for this. Yeah. Well, yeah, she didn't, like, she she wasn't even, even archaeology fieldwork, which is not this, but requires that you be outside. Even that was, she she said, like, that is not what I do. Like, she works in a climate controlled museum vault studying specimens that are very safely dead and like and and throwing her into a situation with an extremely alive creature and you sort of you know you sense it starting to happen the minute she realizes that the tooth that she was sent was like pulled out of a body that's still in the morgue that it's like oh like a a currently alive creature yeah did this like this is already this is already not what I thought I signed up for when I went to graduate school. <laughs> yeah, and also like she really does that morgue thing. She tries to suck it up and be like, "I'm gonna yeah. be, I'm yeah. putting on my big girl pants, and I'm gonna yeah. look at the dead body because if these guys can do it, I can." Mm-hmm. Um, and I also wouldn't like those entrails were out. I don't oh need to God. see. A, like maybe a dead body, not so bad. Entrails. I, I had a hard time with yeah. the entrails. Yeah. I I was like, okay, I get. I get what you're trying to do here, which is that it's very shocking that like a whole body was ripped in half. Like I, I, I see that. I see why you feel it's necessary. I, I could have done without multiple shots of us having to like look at the little dangly, yeah, tentacles of intestine. I was like, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, that's. I. That's always my thing. With like, I'm not a horror movie person. I'm yeah, not like same, a, same, same. a squeamish. Like, I. I don't like that. I just don't yeah. need it. Yeah. Um. And it's the same thing with like with uh, what's it called? Um, Piranha. Where you're just like, ooh, okay, mm. those are those are just parts that we're getting to see on screen. That's yeah more than I needed to know. Yeah, I, I don't need recently, that. Yeah, I only recently learned that like your internal organs don't go in like digestive order that your liver sits on top of your stomach. And so that's the most I need to know in my life about oh. my insides. Yeah, liver sits kind of like on top of behind your stomach. And I'm like, that doesn't make sense. That's not in the, it should be like an assembly line. Yeah. But... Like gravity. It just like goes like from one level to the other, to the that's other. That's what you huh. think. And then there's like a little spiral staircase of intestines going yeah, exactly. there. Like, it, you know, like a Disneyland queue of intestines. Right. is kind of how I always imagine it. <laughs> oh yeah. 
Yeah, See, we, so we, we learn things here on Disaster Girls. It's I an educational podcast, yeah. you know, like we <laughs> never, never a limit to what the human mind can <laughs> learn. And, and here we're here about today anatomy and then giant crocodiles. I was but yeah, really- but I do. I'm the same way. Like I don't, I don't like gore and viscera and I yeah. don't want to look, see a lot of blood. And I feel like in a movie like this, what we want is, and which I, I think that it did largely deliver. Um, we want the, the menace of like dark shape floating through the water and then the big kind of splash out of nowhere like like the the monster shots the sort of the sense of of a creeping something out there that occasionally jump scares you like that's what we come to a giant crocodile movie to see like I don't need the intestines to be exactly the right kind of scared and I did feel like it did it did really well with that sort of with like the atmospheric spookiness like I liked that you know, it's not like it's not the Meg. We're not in like a beautiful blue scenic ocean. We're in like yellow, green, brackish water with like stuff floating in it and like sticks and kelp. Like the water's not pretty and scenic yeah. and like a nature special underwater. It's like it's a lake. So it's stagnant. It doesn't have like ocean flow. And it's sort of like it's like a little bit gross and you can't really see through it. And so that sort of sense of like, something moving out there like i've never found the underside of a beaver dam so suspenseful but like oh my God. now i'm like oh that actually is an excellent horror movie set <laughs> that's terrifying yeah. The, yeah oh my gosh the way that like uh, i i get claustrophobic when i see somebody like with snorkel gear on any or scuba gear on mm-hmm. anyway and like controlled mm-hmm. breathing like that yeah inside and you've got the, I mean, I was, and I was also, because going in, I didn't realize that was Brendan Gleeson. So I, and I also wasn't, I'm not sure how much of a name he was. So that whole sequence, I was like, I don't know whether it's going to be the fish and game guy or uh-huh, the sheriff uh-huh. who bites it. So yeah. it was genuinely suspenseful. Um, and I also would not have been shocked if like a beaver had just launched itself at his face because yeah. that, yeah, it's like that, that beaver dam, I do not ever want to spend time in. No, I thought, I thought that too. I thought like, okay, e- either like they're, you know, one of them's going to almost die or I thought they're going to discover, you know, cause it's like, it's the cold open. So, you know, like this is where the revelation that a monster exists in this otherwise peaceful, idyllic lake will be discovered. But I was thinking, Oh, they're going to find like a bunch of mangled beaver corpses in the beaver dam and be like, yeah. what's eating the beavers. So I, I didn't expect to like, you know, visible guts in the first like seven minutes, but it yeah. is, but it, like you said, like it does, it does really set us up for the notion that at its heart, this whole movie is like the tragedy of Sheriff Hank's worst week of work. Yeah. It's just Sheriff's, it's his worst week of work. Like he gets all these outsiders and then he loses at least one to two of his friends. Or he, mm-hmm. I guess only one of his friends. So he's not like the fish and, and wildlife guy who dies. <laughs> like, but he has to look at so many dead bodies. And there's so much paperwork. You know he's going to have yeah. to. And oh like, my God, how's yeah. he going to explain giant crocodile on any of that? That's not on any of the forms. It's so much work that he's got to do now. <laughs> I I was pleasantly surprised that he makes it through the movie because I really did expect. Because yes. he's the kind of character who normally gets like a comeuppance yeah. that I was not looking forward to because I so liked him especially once his Irish accent started slipping through. And then I was like, <laughs> head cannon. He's actually Irish. He didn't grow up in this town. He adopted American accent to fit in. And then he moved here. Like I fully head <laughs> to explain this guy's backstory. Um, I would, I would read that fanfic, the origin yeah. story of Sheriff Hank. The, the origin story. Cause like, there's a sad, there's something really sad about him. 
like Sheriff Hank has a real pathos to him. And it's only partly because like everyone is mean to him. Um, But yeah, I, I was so glad we didn't lose him. I also was really glad that Hector isn't revealed to be like secretly scheming to get the croc to do like a king kong most deadly thing on earth show yeah yeah like, he he didn't like he didn't have ulterior motives yeah he's just a weird guy who likes crocodiles yeah. and and this movie for him provided a a bit of the revelation that like he was in over his head and yeah. so by the end of it it's like He's he's genuinely like he's willing to he's on the team like he doesn't want them to kill it but he like he but he doesn't for example he, no he doesn't object to, to shooting the other it. one yeah you know like he doesn't want to die um but he like it because he's he's sort of in the mold of Tim Curry's character in in Congo, Congo. yeah um in in the like you know weird like super rich guy with like slightly shady what are you doing here exactly. Um, is he telling the truth, you know, chasing weird mythology sort of around the world. But like, but he also, you know, what I liked about Hector was that it really was like, it actually was just sort of what it seemed on the surface, yeah. just like a guy with too much money. And this is his weird hobby. And, and, and he has in the end, a more normal relationship to that hobby in that it isn't more important to him than not dying. Yeah. Than a lot of these characters that we see in other movies where he's like a true believer about something or he has an agenda of some kind for this creature related to like more power or ambition of his own. It was like, no, he, in the end, like he doesn't want the crocodile to eat him. Yeah. Cause that was what I thought. Like I thought, okay, the sheriff is going to die in, in some kind of like, this is the horrible thing that happens that like makes it real or his comeuppance for, you know, he he gets a gun and tries to shoot it and then it eats him or something, something. So I, th I thought that was a possibility. And then I also thought that it was a possibility that Hector would would be so stupid and get too close in an attempt to like mystically commune with the thing and then it would eat him. Yeah. And so I liked that that everybody made it to the end and that like common sense by the end of it was like, okay, we, we need a collective plan. The plan itself is ridiculous, but it it mostly works and they're all on board with it and they're all sort of, you know, co-strategizing. And it wasn't like Hector was so like he wasn't he wasn't suicidally obsessed with crocodiles. He was no, like he was a guy he, who was exploring a fetish and then realized that yeah. maybe he wanted to scale back his fetish a little bit. Yeah. And like, and and we all whomst among us has yeah. not gone through that in some point in our lives. Yeah. He's you know, Hector was kind of just like experimenting and he thought he was ready for that level. And then he was like, mm -hmm. nope, I'm not ready for a 30 foot crocodile. I'm going to no. keep this. Keep the like, training wheels on. Yeah. No, keep it on. Just, you know, do the light, the light crocodile bdsm yeah. <laughs> but yeah it's i mean what i'm so glad that you enjoyed it because it is it is such a weird little delight of a movie i had uh, an incredible time i yeah. i it it and i think part of it was that like because like it kept surprising me like it it had both sort of in in the the unexpected kind of comedic you know weird little beats or surprises or reveals that are because it was so kind of impeccably structured as a comedy. So there were like surprise laughs mixed in with the jump scares, but also because like it didn't um, like, I think it wasn't, it wasn't afraid to be silly, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like ironically. So like, I wasn't laughing at it. I was laughing with it the whole time where like, you know, like the cow 
dangling from the helicopter trying to like go fishing for crocodiles. Like it's so, it's so stupid. And yet, because it's so deliberately impeccably stupid on purpose. Yeah. It's like, we're not making fun of this movie. They're all aware that this is the most insane idea ever. Like they all think this is nuts, but they're like, well, we we don't have a better one. And so like that, that level of like awareness of its own ridiculousness, but that's part of the story made it feel, made all the funny stuff feel so much funnier because they're like, yeah, we also think this is crazy, but we don't have anything else to do. So I guess we're going to just, we're going to do the thing with the cow. Okay. Or like yeah. when, when Bridget Fonda, like when, when she, when he throws the head at her the second time and she's like, people keep throwing heads at me. <laughs> That's the second time. Stop throwing heads at me. And there was something in, in her calling attention to it where it's like, it's like, it's not quite breaking the fourth wall. It's not quite like a meta joke, but just like, and an in-universe acknowledgement of the absurdity of this situation that just somehow made it like 10 times funnier. I was like, I was like, I was laughing so hard all the way through it. I was like, this is just, this is so ridiculous. And also it's a rom-com and also it's half a Hallmark Christmas movie. And it's a really good, like, and the monsters were good. Like I, yeah. you know, it's 1999. So like, it's all practicals. There's no like crappy CGI. I was like, this is a good crocodile. Yeah. This is a, this is a well-constructed bear. Like I'm feeling it. You know, yeah, I it's... like the scares were scary. It was also really funny. I was like, this is, this is good stuff. That's absolutely. I mean, and you're right. Yeah, the the crocodile looks great. Uh, when the crocodile is trapped in the in the helicopter at the end. Oh, my God. Looks so good. Works so well. Yes. Yes. So, yeah. Like really, really good. That part particular equal parts silly and scary. Like yeah. like on one level, it's a it's an animal with a thing stuck on its head. And that's just <laughs> always funny. Yeah. Like funny on the same level as like. Your cat has its head stuck in a box and you sort of like laugh at it thrashing around for a few minutes where you like take pity and go to help because it's just fundamentally silly. But yeah. also it's a huge snapping crocodile and only the structural integrity of that helicopter is keeping it from killing you all. So like it is still suspenseful and high stakes while it is the goofiest thing you've ever seen. And I felt like the whole movie walked that line so beautifully. I yeah. was like, this is a really unexpectedly balanced kind of back and forth shift in tone that I really, I really appreciated and, and was not expecting to find it so clever at all. Yeah. And it's not like, I mean, it's an hour and 22 minutes. There's no yeah. wasted time in this movie. No. Remember when movies were 83 minutes? Incredible. Miss, miss it so much. Love a, love a movie that gets me in and out in less than the two hour mark, like the two hour time to get yeah. validated. And tells a full story. Yeah. So yeah, so does this, I think, like, do we, does this take us to what this movie was really about? Yes, I think, oh, there were, I had three things in my notes that were hilarious lines that I wanted mm -hmm. to share that we had, we didn't get a chance to talk through. So I liked, um, uh, oh, I liked when, um, uh, when the sheriff was roasting her about how unprepared she was for the woods and he was like, oh my God, we forgot to pack feminine napkins. I laughed at that. <laughs> um, that was a great one. Yeah. I, I loved the part where they were like, technically in all of history, crocodiles have been more worshipped than Jesus. Also loved that. Um, I loved the part where uh, where Hector was telling him like, you know, like suck my big fat lock or something. And then mm -hmm. he walks away and Hank goes, was that like a uh, homosexual remark? <laughs> <laughs> Which also made me laugh. Um, 
And then, oh, and then this is the one that I really, if anything in this movie should become uh, Disaster Girls merch. It was, you can't take a cow by eminent domain, <laughs> which is one of the funniest lines <laughs> I've ever heard in any movie. And especially when you know that the reasoning behind it is they want to take the cow and dangle it over the water to go fishing for a crocodile for like a cow hanging out of a helicopter. I was like, this is so funny. But yeah, you you can't <laughs> take a cow by eminent domain. Shouted by Betty White as the helicopter flies away. I was like, this is this is the best movie of all time. It is. It's a, it is a perfect line. It's a just a bizarre line. It's wonderful. Everything that Betty White. I mean, like obviously, when you have Betty White in something, you're going to get one of the greatest comedic performances possible. But on top of that, like there is something she is so distinctly that character in this movie. Yeah. Like there is no the when she tells the story of her husband dying and the first version of the story is like, well, you know, he had like he has some sort of degenerative disease and eventually he just mm -hmm. wanted me to kill him. And eventually, so I hit him over the head with a frying pan. It's like, and then she says it and like, just tells yeah, it like, like it. Uh, okay. okay. And then when she's like, oh, you can dig him up if you don't believe me. And I was like, <laughs> Betty White, that's not why they're staring. <laughs> she says it. So when she, the, when she, you can dig it up, you know, and she delivers it so perfectly. And you're like, that's she only, does. only Betty White could deliver that with well, that and, sort of like wide-eyed, yeah. wonderful, sweet innocence. So while innocent. Also, while also being deeply like, there is something very scary about that kind of sweet, like old lady yeah. innocence. Well, and and that sort of, I mean, I, I think, you know, in terms of like the kind of the thematic analysis of it, which I think like, if you want to skip to that part, sort of talking mm -hmm. about the like, what is it about? That to me really felt like the, the, the running theme of the movie felt like in many ways, as was, which is true with so many monster movies, you know, the, the evil, dangerous, scary shit looming beneath the seemingly benign, which is so often like for for horror movies or monster movies that are like set in a small and I did like small town, right? And it's always like everything looks beautiful and innocent and safe and perfect above the surface, and then underneath yeah. it's crazy and and it's woven through you know everything from like the relationship that Kelly thinks is stable and then turns out to involve infidelity. And that's the inciting incident that sends her to this town where there's a perfectly smooth, glassy lake that everyone thinks is idyllic and beautiful that has a monster lurking beneath it. And then this like cute, innocent old lady who turns out to be like maybe a husband murderer slash then like a crocodile enabler. So everything has like layers beneath it. I did think it was very odd and funny and I wasn't sure if like this was like a reference to something that I didn't get but I did love that like that like the lake is not actually called Lake Placid like yeah. it's called Black Lake because the water doesn't move but then they were going to call it Lake Placid but then someone else had already called dibs on it and I was like well that's a weird specific detail like that's a the movie is named after a lake but it's not the name of the lake and so I wasn't sure if that was like is there like another movie called Lake Pla like, I wasn't sure if that was like a reference, but I did feel it like it's so weird because because it's like not as if people you can't like there are many towns that have multiple there's billions of crystal lakes out there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so I, I was yeah. like, why? Why is this in the movie? What's it supposed to mean? Um, But it but like, you know, a, a lake is, you know, like it's a 
self-contained body of water, right? It's not the ocean. There's not like currents, sure. like, you know, moving in and out to the same degree. So it's like, it's still, and it's peaceful and it's serene. And like the water is all, you know, glassy. And then like underneath it, there are what we learned by the end, like a bazillion yeah. <laughs> crocodiles. Yeah. So that felt like, okay, this is like the thematic through line is like, what's lurking underneath the things that you think are safe. Oh, I like that. I like that. Yeah. And expanding that to the small townness of it. And yeah, that's, I think that really works. I was really struggling on this one to find like what this movie was about other than just crocodiles, but I like (laughs) And it really is. It is mostly about a crocodile. Yeah. But no, I like the idea that this is is a metaphor for like a small town where things, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the, not everything is as it seems. And it sometimes it's the twin peaks of, of crocodile giant there, crocodile. Yeah. Movies. It actually did. It felt a little bit like her in particular, like Betty White's character would transplant, I think, quite neatly into a twin peaks universe because she, that, that sort of like cheerfully sinister, like I'm smiling while I'm telling you about the murder that I did. Like that yeah. sort of juxtaposition. It was like it had that, it has a, like a bit. I mean, it's too silly to really be like properly Lynchian, but it had a bit of that energy, her in particular. Yeah, for sure. And also, I think like to a degree, like the Hector weirdness, like, yeah, I, I could go with that. It's the twelve. Oh, yeah. Oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah. Hector too. Yeah, you're right. Do we think right. that she actually did kill her husband? Like, I know that she tells the story of her husband getting eaten by the crocodile by accident, but mm-hmm. I feel like the truth is somewhere between the two stories. I <laughs> wondered about that because I, you know, I think... I think that the 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 layers of reveal of of how much how much she knows and how much agency she has really like e- each act of the movie sort of peels back another layer. So at first yeah. you're like, okay, she whomped him over the head with a frying pan. So she's weird, but she's weird in a way that's unrelated to her crocodile mystery. Okay. Now we realize she's feeding animals to the crocodiles. Okay, so that's level one. And then we find out that like she quote unquote accidentally like the crocodile got her husband question mark but then at the end when she when she's like you know that she calls the baby crocodiles mommy and they mm-hmm. like nibble at her toes and she goes out and feeds them but yeah there was a part of me that was like is she like is is she the one maybe more than even than Hector who had some kind of like you know like deep existential relationship or bond with the crocodile because it did like it is you know she does get like you said she does get awfully close to the waterline and the crocodile never bothers her yeah so so it to whatever degree it can sort of distinguish among humans the implication seems to be that the crocodiles find her like they consider her a friend and like mom who feeds them and so it does make you wonder, like, like did did she raise it, or has it been there for much longer than when she claimed it showed up six years ago? You know, and and it is very familiar with her, and that's mm-hmm. why she's safe. But yeah, yeah I, they say I it's am 150 not... years old, which like I don't know how they're pulling that number. I understand that they're pulling that number out because it's a 30 foot crocodile; it takes time to grow. But like, we don't know that. We don't know that this crocodile didn't grow. She that she's in feeding him like human growth hormone cows well right yeah like if he if he made did he get that is the implication that he got to the size that he got to because she's been like feeding him humans i mean they do they do sort of a hand wave away at some point i think towards the beginning in the initial investigation that somebody does say like well nobody's ever disappeared from there yeah no no one's ever gone up there and gone missing so she wasn't like feeding him stray hikers 
Um, but the fact that she never reported the husband's death and they all thought like that it was just like a couple who lived up there. I was like, okay, well, I, I, this definitely leaves us asking some questions about whether she like, she fed that thing at least one human. Yeah. I, I kind of think she might've fed that thing to fed, fed her husband to, yeah. the, to the girl. Oh, you know what? I don't, and I'll she, take you know Betty White's side heavy. on this. Yeah. yeah, I don't. I, I do don't... love what I do love that line that she has when she's like, "Oh, pa- missing paperwork distresses me." So I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, she was so good. Well, and that was like it was one of the tricky things about like you know the fantasy casting. It was it was yeah. like Betty like what Betty White and Oliver Platt do as actors is so specific. Yeah, that you really have to like okay, we're 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 taking that sort of character archetype in a completely different direction like you couldn't plug in somebody else and be like do a betty white impression yeah it wouldn't work no absolutely it's well so that's i mean for my fantasy castings i'm gonna skip what was this movie really about because i couldn't really pin something down and i do love your your sort of like that this is about the small town life um mine i the only thing i'm changing is i'm actually gonna swap bridget fonda into volcano and pull Anne heche out of volcano and put her into this oh okay because yeah. I always, as much as I love Anne Heche, I've always felt that her her performance in, she's doing like a screwball comedy thing the whole time through mm-hmm. Volcano. And Tommy Lee Jones is very much not. And yeah. so her energy playing off of Tommy Lee Jones is weird. But Bridget Fonda being a little more prickly, a little more combative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like would have been yeah. a great energy to play off of Tommy Lee Jones. And then you would have Anne Heche with this sort of bemused like, ugh. These Mainers, these people living in the woods. Am I going to really, mm-hmm. like, I got clean fingernails. Like, she would have the humor, her performance would be a little bit more, like, not softer, but the edges would be rounder. Yeah. And so I think she would have been really fun and would have played off of Bill Pullman really well and would have oh, given like great reactions. And we keep the rest of the cast because, yeah. Of, yeah. And, and then it, it would have been really like a proper rom-com exactly. energy. Yeah, I like that. I yeah. think it would have been a little too more tonally consistent and I would have really enjoyed it. And it's, it's not a criticism yeah. of Bridget Fonda. I think her performance, like her performance was good and she did exactly what she was asked to do. It's just, I think that if those two blondes had swapped in the 90s, mm-hmm. I think both of those performances would have made a lot more sense. I agree. Yeah. Because that's would, where I'm going with it. I would endorse that. So yeah. I, I took a totally different tack. So I... We are recording this in June. It is Pride Month. And sure. so I did a all queer actors. Hell yeah. Lesson. Um, so so here's what I got. So Bridget Fonda would be Andrew Rannells. Uh Bill okay. Coleman would be Lee Pace. Oh my God. Uh Oliver Platt would be Kate McKinnon. Sure. Uh Brendan Gleason would be Tig Nataro. I love this cast so much. Uh, Betty White would be Holland Taylor. Uh huh. The female deputy would be Tessa Thompson. Oh my god. Uh, and then Adam Arkin and Mariska Hargitay would be uh B.D. Wong to get us a little bit of a Jurassic Park tie <laughs> in there, uh, and Wilson Cruz. And also B.D. Wong, there you're keeping the Law and Order connection going. Yeah, Law and Order connection, Jurassic Park connection, looks yeah. good in a lab coat, plausible oh. as a museum owner. Yeah, um, absolutely. I would yeah. believe, see, now on B.D. Wong, I would believe B.D. Wong would, would could and would get it with anybody in that museum. B.D. Wong is incredibly attractive and and has has a sort of like, this is like what makes him so funny in the Jurassic Park movies is it's like, there there is, I don't know, maybe this is just 
me or this is the world but like there is a kind of like like quiet sexual charisma about bd wong and yeah. every single thing that he's ever in that it's like like some actors just can't quite turn it off and so you're like i know this scene isn't supposed to be sexy because you're just talking about science but the way that you're doing it is fundamentally sexy and and so he's very believable as somebody who it's like you would fall in love with if he was your boss in a workplace because everything he does is hot so absolutely yeah and, and then Wilson he's got as the best friend oh yeah well perfect excellent love that's that my, that's whole... my cast I love that cast. I love the com- the combination of Lee Pace and Andrew Reynolds because he would be just like he does fussy so well that he yeah. would be great as an a fish out of water. Exactly. Fussy guy and then and then big quiet handsome stoic guy yeah. who's and and who's grudgingly being like pulled into the chaos and has to like be patient with you because he's also he's annoyed but secretly charmed. Yes, and also has fantastic hair. If you're going to replace Bill Pullman fantastic with anyone, hair. he's yeah. got to have good hair and that's a key thing for me. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love Tig as as uh, Tig should play more small town sheriffs. That's she's just dope. she's so dry and bitchy. I, I'm a huge fan of Star Trek Discovery, and she's so funny on that. Just has these like like weary, exasperated, quippy little one liners, and then really like what what sparked it for me was thinking like, okay, who who could do Oliver Platt? Like who has that kind of oh, well. fast talking weirdo physicality? And Kate McKinnon was the first person that I thought of, and then yeah. I was like, okay, this is now this is now what I'm doing. Um, but it's just like. What he and, and Betty White in particular, like their acting styles and and what we what we expect of them in a role are so specific that you can't just slot in another actor. Like you can't sure. just sort of swap them out. So it's like you gotta go like a completely different direction with it. Yeah, no, Holland Taylor would be a very different older woman. But mm-hmm. and she would have she would bring like the respectability aspect that yeah, but you can don't... also be smiling and sinister. Yes, exactly. But like there's something, there's always something a little bit more like duck on the surface of the water calmness to her that Betty White never has that would be would totally work and would contrast very well with the cast you've assembled because the cast you've assembled has like more inherent chaos to them yeah you really you have to balance the chaos Muppets and the order Muppets and so if Holland Taylor is the old lady then you're like okay so you're smarter than everybody else here you're absolutely up to something you're gonna come out fine in the end I'm not worried about you getting eaten by the crocodile because you're Holland Taylor and (laughs) And meanwhile, you know, like all the other crazies around that they have to sort of be wrangled. She's just like going to sit back and like drink her tea on the porch and watch the idiots do things with cows. <laughs> oh, that's a delightful mental image, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would I would fully sign up to watch this film. I want to watch I want to watch the the gay cast monster movie. We, we yes, we need more. Of we those. deserve representation this. matters. Yeah. Yeah, not just for Pride for every month. We deserve to see yes. a bunch of of gay dudes running around trying to fight a giant crocodile. Yes. That's... As a lesbian, I think it's important for lesbians that we get to also have our turn in the sun being yeah. weird naturalists <laughs> who do crazy things with monsters in monster movies. Totally. Oh, Kate McKinnon would be so good having so that good. conversation with the crocodile in the water. I know. Uh, <laughs> like I so saying bad. that it would be beneath the crocodiles, it would be beneath the crocodile to eat her. She could totally deliver that line. Yeah. Yeah, I she really has she like she has the exact right like the crazy yeah. eyes are the same. That's the piece that translates. So it's funny because I I had fantasy cast in when I did when we did Anaconda. I fantasy cast Kate McKinnon playing John Voight in that movie. Oh, like, I think giving I John Voight exactly to that one. Yeah, yeah and I truly funny. feel like I truly feel like Kate McKinnon. This is something we need. Like 
she needs to get in on this. Kate McKinnon yeah. needs to play a disaster movie villain because we're ready for it. Yeah, yeah. She's so good. And yeah. and she has she does bring the right kind of like unhinged energy yeah. to high stakes situations. Like she feels she she feels like she would be she would feel like natural and organic in that world. Like because not not all actors can fit into all fictional universes. Like one of my favorite things I've ever seen on Twitter was somebody tweeted after the Little Women movie came out and that they were sort of dubious about the casting of Laura Dern as Marmy because mm-hmm. she has to, like, she just looks contemporary. She like looks like she's over times. And they said like, that woman just has a face that knows about soul cycle, which was just <laughs> the most perfect, impeccable way of phrasing it. I was like, yes, yeah. that's what it is. She just, she exudes southern california 21st century hippie mom and so it's a bit more of a leap to like project her into louisa may alcott sure some actors don't necessarily have disaster movie kind of energy but kate mckinnon be like yeah i i would i would be i would find nothing like implausible in like her staring a giant crocodile in the eye i'd be like i believe this i'm along for this ride yeah, it's well that's why like Kate McKinnon, I couldn't port her into a, a rom com universe. That doesn't track. Like that's right, that's not right. a world where Kate McKinnon can right. operate. But you're at yes, she nothing there is no small world for her in, in a disaster movie for exactly. sure. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I love I I'm I'm genuinely like you know it's a good disaster movie, like recasting when I'm like Mm, I want to see that film now. I know, I know. How can we like green light this? Yeah. The minute the strike is over, let's oh my put God. this into production. Absolutely. <laughs> We're doing reboots anyway. I would 100% love, I will like, let's let's reboot Lake Placid, guys. It's time. Yeah. Oh if God. it's a big enough franchise that they can do four sequels and a crossover, I think mm-hmm. we can we can reboot Lake Placid. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, but with practical effects, because otherwise that crocodile is going to look rubbery as shit. Yeah. Well, how many Towering Infernos are you giving this on a scale of one to five? Um, I'm going to give it four. I think it, I I would give it five just sort of for pure pleasure. I'm taking one off only because like there are a number of plot threads that are introduced and never resolved. And yeah. so in terms of like tying everything up with a satisfying bow at the end, like you said, like we never really do find out how the crocodile got there. We never really do find out whether Hector believes they're gods or not. It was all like the the romance, we don't see anything of except for that they're going to like go have a drink together and then question mark. Yeah. So I was like, mm, we 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 left a few threads dangling in the wind, potentially for a sequel bait without tying them up, which I take off one point for. But just in terms of like an enjoyable motion picture, yeah. very, very high up there. Yeah, and I, you know, it's funny because like, I do feel to a degree that this movie is missing. It's an 82-minute film. I feel like it's missing eight minutes. Mm-hmm. Like, there's eight mm-hmm. minutes of of story that they did, that they they probably could have used that they didn't have in there. So we could have gotten, like, there's room for them to add in a couple extra things to make this feel more full. Yeah. But, yeah, I I was gonna, I was going 4.25. Um, as we could do quarter, if you want to, like, I, I you can do quarter towers. We can do, like, two floors of a tower if you'd like. Um, yeah, 4.25 feels yeah. right. I'll give, yeah, I'll give it that because in it is it is more enjoyable than it is unsatisfying by a significant margin. You know, yeah. the 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 notes I have are very small. They did cut things, which is interesting. I I found I found the screenplay online and I read like the first oh, few scenes of it. And there's yeah, there's like a whole um like there's a whole scene. It's like it starts with the scene where he breaks up with her. Like there's there's a bunch of stuff in there. Mm-hmm. And they didn't make it. And then like the, and then, you know, cutting to the, 
sheriff and like that whole thing is different. So it'd be interesting to read just to sort of see like if if some of the things that feel missing were in fact on an earlier draft and left on the cutting room floor and what they were replaced by, because it did feel like the shape of it was very, was different, at least in the first, I only read like the first few pages, but, um, but yeah, but I agree with you, like just like a little, a little bit of flushing things out, a yeah. little bit of, of bringing those threads sort of full circle at the end because the jokes and the things that they did plant and then pay off worked really well. They just didn't pay off like every single thing every single can of worms that was open didn't get closed. Yeah. And I think that's totally a fair assessment and yeah, it's it, but it's God, it's a fun ride. It is a like, fun ride. I will if, absolutely watch it again. I'm yeah. thrilled that you made me watch it or not. Maybe that gave me an opportunity to watch that, it. That we poked at you enough that we did it. Yes. Well, before I send you on your way, Claire, anything you want to promote? Do you happen to be a, a incredibly talented writer with a charming book series that you want to plug or <laughs> talk about how you're fighting the archdiocese like anything that you want to anything you want to promote right now before I send you uh, on your merry way well thank you I um yes I I do I do many things I um I wrote a book called the rewind files which came out in 2015 which is a uh time travel adventure about Watergate and it's I'm so working fun. on two sequels now I'm hoping that book two will be out um next year and then book three probably the year after um following the same group of time travel agents who are all Nixon specialists. And so it's also about how everything wrong in America right now can be in many ways traced back to the Nixon administration. Love it. <laughs> um, who can argue with that? Yeah. It's, I, I feel, I feel very strongly about that. I've been a Watergate junkie since I was a kid. Uh, so that's, that's sort of one, one big yeah thing I'm working on. I'm on Twitter at, um, at Claire Willett, where I am, Yes, often yelling about politics, yelling about uh, religion. I am Catholic and there's sort of an unfolding situation in the Archdiocese of Portland right now about trans and non-binary kids that's causing some alarm. Um, yelling about that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, uh, if you're interested in supporting writers on strike, I've been organizing people on Twitter to send water and snacks and supplies to the striking writers at the studio. So you can DM me on Twitter about that. Um, Thank you for that, and, by the way. That's really, yeah. like, I've seen your organizing efforts on that. And that's yeah. really tremendous. And, and thank you. It's been really, you know, I think there are a lot of folks who don't live nearby enough to show up someplace with a picket sign, but want to be like, what's like a meaningful material way that I can show support. And if you get, you know, five or six folks together, even if everyone can only give like five to 20 bucks, that's a lot of granola bars and bottled water from Costco mm -hmm. just to like keep people fueled up. And also just like to make people feel loved and supported just like, so that, so that they know, like apart from, you know, what you're seeing on social media or whatever that like pop general, you know, public opinion really is on their side on this and just like sort of have that support. So yesterday was the season premiere of the new season of uh, Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And so we sent like a big breakfast tacos and coffee and donuts feast to those writers because they were on the picket lines instead of getting to like celebrate and watch their own show and have parties on premiere day. And we were like, mm -hmm. well, we want them to feel good about it. So yeah, so that's been a really satisfying. Anyone who wants to can chip in. We're hoping obviously that it'll become unnecessary after strike day 60 if there's any kind of a deal but if there isn't we're in it for the long haul so yeah so that's all on twitter um you can reach me there and that's really where all of that's where all of my life is these days <laughs> yeah uh, very relatable on that point well claire thank you so much for coming on thank you for talking like placid with me and and it was great to have you 
Thank you for having me. And it was just also so fun to get a chance to like actually talk to you in person. Like I have <laughs> listened to your podcast voice. So I know what you sound like. And I, we tweeted each other all the time, but this is our first like actual conversation. Yeah. I, gotta I say, gave that five it, out of five towering infernos. It's so fun to finally hear people's voices from people I know from the internet. Cause it's never yeah. what I expect. And it's always yeah. a, just a wonderful thing to be like, oh, exactly. okay. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you again. Thank you. Well, this is normally where Jordan and I would do the what's up next, Um, but since it's just me, next week we've got the final episode of Surface, the thrilling conclusion where some of our questions are answered, uh, some of our questions are not, and most importantly, we get one final goodbye with Dr. Lady Scientist Lake Bell. Um, So in the meantime, between now and next week, you can find Jordan at J-O-R-C-R-U on Twitter. You can listen to her other podcasts, Feeling Seen, on the Maximum Fun Network, as well as uh, Otsterion, which you can find uh, on any of your downloadable podcast locations. And then, of course, I'm Amanda Smith says on Twitter. I'm Amanda Smith uh, at Blue Sky. And then we're Disaster underscore pod on Twitter, DisasterGirlsPod at gmail.com. We're Disaster Girls on Blue Sky as well. You all know we have our merch shop, DisasterGirls.myshopify.com. If you have a few minutes, please go online, rate, review us, give us five stars. All of that good stuff. And we'll see you all back next week for the series finale of Surface. Oh, and remember, if any of you know the Pate brothers, um, you guys have like 10 more days between now and when we record next week for uh, getting us that, sh- that series Bible. Because I have so many unanswered questions. Anyway, bye guys. <laughs>